This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Cigna Healthcare. Don't just pay for a health plan, invest in a growth plan. You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Hello, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm Tara Parker Pope, editor of the Wellbeing Desk here at The Post. My next guest wants to solve the problem of employee burnout and increase employee productivity. Joining me to talk about the four-day work week is Representative Mark Takano. Congressman, welcome to Washington Post Live. Thank you, Tara. Glad to be here. So nice to have you. So tell me, you've introduced legislation for a 32-hour work week. Can you tell me more about how this will work, what it entails? Well, Tara, simply it uh, redefines the the work week uh, hours in the Fair Labor Standards Act. The Fair Labor Standards Act was passed in 1938 originally, and that's what gave us the 40-hour work week uh, and the ability for non-exempt workers to earn overtime pay. We would simply redefine that work week to 32 hours and uh, non-exempt workers would be able to earn overtime pay uh, starting at 32 hours. So is this going to have cost implications for companies? You know, there's an expectation now that employees work 40 hours for a certain salary. How is it going to affect the bottom line of of companies, do you think? Well, I think that's going to vary uh, from, uh, you know, labor sector to labor sector, uh, different industries, but um, it could it could increase costs, but it may not. Companies don't have to uh, pay uh, overtime. They don't have to have workers work uh, longer than 32 hours. Um, but we do have this issue of how will workers be able to uh, manage their expenses if they can't earn the same salary that they earned during uh, a five-day work week in four days. Uh, And so that's something that's going to have to uh, play itself out. Um, My intent, though, is really to uh, create a a conversation uh, or to expand the conversation about uh, the cultural conversation we're having about uh, how long should the work week be uh, and uh, how do we create a new work-life balance in America. What kind of feedback are you hearing from individuals? Do people say, oh, that sounds great to work a four-day week, or are they nervous and going, I'm worried that my salary would be cut, you know, how would I manage my life? What's the the reaction? Well, the reaction is largely positive. Um, I was just at a 4th of July day parade, uh, and there were shout-outs from uh, the parade route. Uh, Congressman, when are we going to get the four-day work week? We need it. Uh, there is a, I think, a great hunger, especially after uh, the deprivations of the pandemic, uh, and where many Americans experienced greater work flexibilities, uh, that they wanted the new normal. They did not want to go back to uh, the old normal that existed pre-pandemic. And I also think that Americans, many Americans, not all, were able to experience uh, a greater work-life balance because of the work flexibilities they did experience, being able to work at home. Uh, they spent more time with family. Uh, and uh, they wanted, uh, as I said, a, a new normal. Now, not everyone shares uh, this vision. Uh, some people who own companies uh, are very, very concerned about it and outright hostile uh, to the idea. But, you know, 
the 40-hour work week wasn't the norm. It was we Americans worked far more than 40-hour work, uh, 40 hours a week, prior to the law, the Fair Labor Standards Act that we established in 1938. Um, but uh, that law was in response to great social change and upheaval, um, and even uh, business leaders uh, backed the idea of a uh, of a uh, of a five-day work week. I think we have uh, uh, the beginnings of a movement to take us to a four-day work week, uh, and health and well-being is a big part of that conversation. So how do you think this will help workers in terms of their health and well-being? You know, we talked, you know, I introduced you saying you wanted to help address the problem of employee burnout. So how, how do you think this will address those issues? Well, I think we have Americans who are raising uh, children, sometimes young children, teenagers, uh, alongside of uh, making sure they're taking care of aging parents and other aging relatives. Uh, and so you find uh, uh, people with enormous stress uh, just within uh, the private world of their family life and also having to balance that with uh, uh, you know, rising demands that uh, they find at their, at their job. Uh, I think that uh, Americans found, uh, especially experienced during the pandemic, uh, what it meant to have greater flexibility in their lives, uh, to be able to uh, uh, work from home, to be able to take care of children and also attend to elders, um, and that uh, they experienced life differently. Uh, at the same time, other Americans uh, discovered how hard they had been working before the pandemic uh, and found out what it was like to get uh, uh, adequate sleep and more rest. Uh, and uh, they found that they liked that as well. And so I think uh, we're living in an America that uh, has recent memory of, of these uh, changes in their lives. And I think they want to make those changes permanent. So how do you address the problem of certain types of professions? It's one thing for, you know, somebody, you know, with a desk job to, to do their job at home or to have flexibility. Some people work in factories, they do shift work, they drive buses. How will everybody benefit from a four day work week? Are there some professions where it's just not practical? Well, that's that's precisely where my legislation comes in. Um, my legislation uh, comes on top of the uh, perceived uh, cultural changes uh, that occurred um, because as a result of the pandemic. But um, I'm beginning to see, uh, and as you say, uh, there are professions, uh, say, uh, in, the, in the professions, it, it's pronounced. Uh, one, of my, one of my close friends who works uh, in the west side of L.A. says, you know, uh, it's hard to find parking Monday through Thursday but on Friday, it's very easy to find parking. So there's just, there's de facto a, a new norm happening where Friday is becoming a de facto uh, day off. It's uh, the weekend is coming early in many professions. But as you mentioned, uh, the uh, those workers who are not exempt, those who are subject to the Fair Labor Standards Act, they're the ones that are least likely to feel the impact of these cultural changes happening say in the legal or the medical professions and that uh, would benefit from a change in the law. Now, 
along with the change in the law is going to have to come uh, higher wages that will result from uh, more union membership and stronger union representation. It's going to have to go hand in hand, a change in the Fair Labor Standards Act to a, a redefinition of a work week to a shorter work week will also have to go hand in hand with other parts of uh, that law and other parts of labor law, which will, uh, which will allow uh, labor to organize more easily uh, and for labor unions to become uh, to have a greater say or, or workers to have a greater say in their working conditions and compensation. I think this gap in working conditions for, you know, one type of worker versus maybe a more line worker really became more evident during the pandemic. A lot of people yes. were staying home and yet they still expected the grocery worker to deliver the groceries and, you know, the buses to keep running. Um, that disparity, I think, the, tell me about that, about what the pandemic revealed. But yeah, you know, thank you, Tara. Uh, it's you know what I was. It's an extension more of what I was talking about. Um, you know, it's uh, the irony is that uh, uh, the shorter work week, uh, the conversations about that uh, are strongest and most intense uh, among workers uh, who uh, are exempt from the Fair Labor Standards Act. Uh, typically, people who are highly skilled. And highly trained, whether you're talking about uh, computer programmers or coders or people in the tech industry, uh, people uh, uh, who are highly trained in medicine. Uh, these are the folks that have a great amount of leverage because, uh, you know, uh, they're the hardest to find. And they're also uh, the ones that um, are, are, are greatly, are greatly compensated. Um, and, uh, you know, you hear, all, I, I'm hearing stories about hospital boards having to plan differently uh, because the next generation of pediatricians or doctors aren't going to want to work as long an, uh, an hour, uh, as, uh, as long hours. But, uh, but the, the, the essential workers that we knew during the pandemic, uh, these folks have the least sort of, uh, say, leverage in bargaining for their wages and their working conditions. Um, I, my bill, is uh, intent upon um, equalizing uh, this conversation so that all uh, workers in America uh, can begin to have realistic uh, conversations, realistic bargaining uh, about uh, a shorter work week uh, without sacrificing their pay. And a new factor that's coming into all of this uh, is AI. Uh, AI, uh, from all that I'm hearing, uh, is going to reduce the amount of work that people need to do collectively. Uh, but how are we going to get uh, the compensation out to uh, a mass consumer society to make a consumer-driven society work? Uh, those are the contradictions that we can work out, contradictions that can be resolved, by the way, uh, with a shorter work week. Do you think there's a generational change going on? I see it in my own workplace where I see young people maybe leaving earlier than I did, going to the gym, saying, you know, I need a break. And, you know, that was not my experience, but I respect it. I'm like, look at you, you know, yeah, take care of yourself. So do you think that this younger generation has higher expectations for work-life balance? Um, I, anecdotally, I would say yes. Um, I, I have spoken to someone in the entertainment industry who runs an entertainment company and was frankly resentful. Like, why should they get to go surfing? <laughs> 
you know, when it's going to be, you know, me, the, the owner that has to take up a slack. And these 30-year-olds, they're just full of energy and just, um, you know, why should they be able to? So there is a, there is a bit of a, gen I mean, among my generation, uh, the folks that, uh, you know, had to plod through and uh, work the extra hours to get where they're going, there is a, there is a kind of, uh analogy uh, analogous sort of story that uh, got told to me about uh, well it got told to our generation about well you know when i was your age we had to trudge through snow and yeah. uh, walk three miles to school and um you know that that's kind of a, a story that uh, is, is a story of progress and um I, I think there is a generational uh change and there's a generational change and um a, a difference a, a contrast in experience and uh, rather than resentment, uh, I think we should, you know, look boldly and bravely and, and embrace the changes uh, that uh, we are facing. Look, the, these uh, the strikes that we're seeing right now, the labor strife that we're seeing, and uh, say the Writers Guild uh, and lately uh, SAG-AFTRA, that's a response to also technological change, the change in and how. Uh, uh, you know, uh, people get paid uh, in certain industries and how work is uh, compensated. Um, so it's it's not just generational change. We're also seeing a response not to just AI, but a response just to uh, technological changes as we know them now. Now, you were a teacher. What about schools? Do you think the school, the kids, do teachers get a four-day work week? Do students get a four-day school week? Is that part of this? Well, well um, I, I can tell you from the teacher point of view, um, I think teachers could be way more effective um, if the model was that um, uh, they uh, they were teaching four days a week, but then they had one day more to prepare, a full day to prepare. Mm. Now, that's not an exactly a reduction for the teacher, uh, but that's just another way to look, look at it. Um, uh, interesting enough, educators were exempt or carved out of the FLSA. They're they uh, they're not uh, entitled to overtime pay. Um, but I wouldn't necessarily exempt uh, teachers or students from this new model, especially since presumably their parents, the parents of kids, would also have uh, a four-day um, uh, work week as well, and. Um, uh, they wouldn't have to necessarily worry about what they were going to do with those kids on, on with, with their children uh, on that fifth day. They would presumably have another uh, day to be with those kids. Now, depending on uh, your nature of parenting, that's either a joyous thing or um, a burden. But I think most kids, you know, having been around a, a couple of 10-year-olds, um, that's a very magical age. Uh, and who wouldn't want uh, an extra day uh, to plan and scheme and do things with them? Now, is there any concern that I could see having a four-day work week and on the Friday being at home and maybe still kind of catching up on work? No meetings. This is great. I've got time. Sort of what you were saying teachers do anyway. Teachers work a lot on the weekends. Are that's you at all worried about do. this? That's what, teachers, yeah. that's what teachers could do if they had that uh, uh, that that one day uh, uh, of planning built in, 
Um, but anyway, finish what you were saying. Well, yeah, my question is whether or not this has the potential to backfire on work-life balance. And you end up working really hard for four days, but you still work on your fifth day, even though you're only supposed to be working 32 hours. That, you know, there's always a transition. Uh, I mean, I, I envision a transition. Um, uh, what, I, uh, what I see is uh, unpredictable rises in uh, or changes or shifts in consumer demand. Uh, so imagine uh, that uh, a time when we didn't have uh, a four-day, a, a five-day work week, um, that we didn't have that uh, Saturday to go to market. Um, and think about what happened when we did have a, a full-on change to uh, a five-day work week, what that meant. You had the weekend. Uh, the weekend produces its own sort of economy. Um, and think what a shift to a four-day work week uh, could mean. Uh, that means, uh, you know, uh, three-day weekends all throughout the year, theoretically. And uh, what that would do, say, to the hospitality industry. Um, and what that would do to restauranting. Uh, and um, how uh, a whole level of consumer demand uh, might arise uh, just because of that. And, you know, we could think this through, uh, think through the logic of that. Um, and uh, so uh, there's a there's an unpredictable way in which this might have an effect on both consumer demand and how it might actually even grow the economy. Um, and I think um, we could think of ways in which this could be offset in terms of the efficiencies gained by AI. That we don't have to be so afraid of AI. Look at AI as our friend, uh, not our enemy, uh, and that our solution, uh, our solution to the contradictions that would result and the stresses, uh, is how we just sort of organize the work week. So my last question for you: You have an all-consuming job. You're a member of Congress, and a lot is asked of you. How? What is your definition of work-life balance? How do you manage that? And do you think you could do this in four days? Well, uh, I find that uh, the life of a member of Congress uh, kind of is a, a seamless sort of uh, uh, absorption into, uh, I think, uh, almost uh, seven days a, a, a week. I mean, I could end up on weekends uh, essentially performing a lot of work tasks. But I also tend to see that my life is, um, uh, I don't know that uh, the distinctions make much sense in my own personal life. And I just happen to be blessed with a job that uh, doesn't seem like a job all the time. Uh, and that's not because I don't work. It's because at work often does seem like uh it, it, it's uh, it's amazing that I get paid to do the work that I'm doing. And so I don't experience burnout. Um, there are certain kinds of things that, um, certain kinds of tasks and activities that uh, I do have to take a break from. But in general, um, you know, I, I enjoy going out and meeting constituents. I enjoy uh, meeting and listening to people. And uh, it makes me feel uh, creative and I do feel creative. Uh, and so, uh, it's the, the job that uh, uh, I'm, would you hear a lot in the halls of Congress from colleagues as I'm living the dream. So um, uh, I hate to ex accept myself from 
the kind of vision that I'm proposing, but uh, uh, that's the truth for me. Well, we're going to have to leave it at that. We're out of time, but thank you so much for joining us. Um, we've enjoyed having you. I hope we get to talk again. So thanks for all the work you're doing. And we thank will be you. right back uh, in a few minutes with uh, our next guest, Ariana Huffington. So please stay with us. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post Newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Ruth Umo, Leadership Editor at Fortune. The importance of mental health has never been more salient as companies realize that a healthy employee population has a direct bottom line impact. Here to discuss the advantage of investing in workplace mental health is Eva Borden, President of Behavioral Health at Evernorth Health Services, a division of the Cigna Group. Welcome, Eva. Thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Ruth. Absolutely. Well, as you know, the workplace can certainly support employee mental health, but it can also contribute to worsening mental health. What are some of the factors that are affecting employees' mental well-being today? Well, it's such an important topic that we're discussing and something that's really come into light even more recently. It's undeniable that post-pandemic, we're seeing a much greater conversation around mental health just generally and as well as in the workplace. But when I think about the factors that are really exacerbating mental health in the workplace, there are a number of things. It can be the pressure around how people are showing up and how do I think about the changes in technology. Return to work, an incredibly important focus right now that depending on where people are, are trying to really grapple through. Just a handful of years ago, I was adjusting to how do I work from home and what my life looked like. And now I'm trying to figure out what does this new world look like? And change is exhausting. And so when we think about the factors that go into this, there could be understaffing, it could be changes in the workplace, it could be how do we go back to work that are really exacerbating or bringing forward this conversation around mental health. And so when I think about mental health, one of the biggest challenges is of all the people who have mental health needs, less than half of them are actually getting treatment. So we have two parts that are happening. One, we're elevating the conversation, but we're not necessarily elevating the treatment or what is it that people need to do. And so when I think about it, you're seeing all kinds of stress, burnout, as well as, as, well as exacerbation of mental health conditions. One of those workplace stressors is employee burnout. Uh, it's a pretty nebulous term and one that can be challenging to identify in the workplace. How then can leaders gauge and address invisible issues like stress, like anxiety, like burnout, before they negatively affect not only the individuals, but the business in its entirety? I love the fact that you use the word invisible because the reality is, is it's something we don't see. When it comes to mental health, it's not evident. So if I break my leg, it's really clear that something has gone wrong and I can say, I need time away. I'm not in the best condition or how can I make sure I've got the right accommodation so I'm showing up the best way that I need to at work. When it comes to mental health, it's not as clear. People can't see it. People don't know what's going on in someone's home life or what's actually happening. And so when we think about what does burnout mean, let's talk about, let's look at the full spectrum of mental health. So if you had 100 people sitting in a room, 25 of them have, on average, um, a true diagnosable mental health condition. 
But the remaining 75 have opportunities to manage stress, manage burnout, manage things along those levels. Just like we think about you can eat healthier, you can exercise more when it comes to the physical world. And so when we think about employers really recognizing that burnout, recognizing the quiet quitting, recognizing the lack of connectedness, recognizing the fact that people may not be showing up as their best selves, that's actually really important and can kind of make something that feels unclear more clear. But I think one of the parts that I find most interesting about the mental health space is where it may be hard to see it. However, it's not hard to quantify the value. So one of the things that we did was last year really look and say, if someone gets the proper type of mental health care, and so we're talking therapy, a relatively light investment, there's actually a very tangible financial return that can come in a short period of time. So when someone has a diagnosable mental health need and gets the right types of treatment, we see that they can get up to $2,500 in savings in 15 months. And I'm talking about real savings that are in a short time frame. So when I think about how important it is to recognize the things that feel invisible because they actually have very visible, tangible um, impacts on the bottom line. And that's why we think mental health is just incredibly, incredible incredibly important for business. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's explore what this looks like in practice. How does Cigna Healthcare address mental health issues with its clients and partners and subsequently lead to healthier employees who are less stressed out and who are less burned out? Uh, so I think there's really three things that I would say are important to focus on when it comes to mental health. The very first one is, how do we help identify people who have a mental health need? We said earlier, it's invisible. Not only that, but from the average onset of symptoms to treatment, there's an 11-year delay. However, there's a tremendous amount of data, indicators, signals that can let you know that someone might have a mental health need. And so one of the things we really focus on is how do we identify people early such that we can help them get to care and really shorten that window of time from symptom onset to treatment so we can realize those savings we talked about earlier. Number two is how do we think about taking care of the entire um, human? So that means it's not just treating the behavioral health in a silo, it's how do we actually connect it across the medical and pharmacy space. When someone is seeking care, they often show up in a doctor's office for drugs, but we need to marry that with the right level of treatment for those individuals so that we optimize the outcomes. That joining up of a fragmented system is incredibly important. And three, we're all humans. And as humans, we're connected individuals. And so how do we make sure we're actually supporting not just the individual who's suffering, but the family unit around him or her? That we're understanding and really making sure we're addressing the children's needs in addition to the parents and helping them get the right type of care by matching them with the providers that make the most sense. So when I think about it, those three factors are incredibly important for how do we advance and really realize that bottom line value. Yeah, and it's worth underscoring that term holistic and organizations will have to lead the charge in addressing employee mental well-being in a really concrete and comprehensive way. And again, the financial savings that you cited, even just in the short term, are pretty telling. Thank you so much, Eva, for your time. And now back to The Washington Post. And now back to Washington Post Live. Welcome back. 
To those of you just joining us, I'm Tara Parker-Pope, editor of the Wellbeing Desk here at The Post. Joining me now is Ariana Huffington, uh, founder of Thrive Global, and we're going to talk about well-being in the workplace. Ariana, so nice to see you. How are you? So great to see you, Tara. It's been a while, but I, I love everything you are doing and um, have admired the way you've been a force of uh, nature in the space. Well, that is so nice for you to say. Well, welcome to Washington Post Live. I'm really looking forward to talking with you. Um, I want to start with this term work-life balance. I'm told that this is not your favorite expression, but you have another phrase that you think is more meaningful to people. What What is the way you want to ha have this conversation? So work-life balance uh, creates that pressure to balance your work and your life exactly like 50%. And the truth is that life doesn't work like that, as you know, Tara. Sometimes you have a sick child or an elderly parent you are taking care of urgently, or other times you have a, a deadline at work. So for me, the word integration has more um, flexibility in it. And as long as you take care of what at Thrive we call these five pillars of daily life, which are sleep, food, movement, stress management, and connection, then how you interact uh, between these two aspects of your life can be much more holistic and, and much uh, uh, less uh, about uh, uh, a particular balance. I think this makes a really good point because I think some people feel like they're failing because they don't have a perfect balance, you know, maybe this week or this month. And this feels like it takes a little bit of the pressure off. Would you agree? Yeah. This Absolutely. idea of integration. It's really more about identifying what are your baseline foundational needs in order to um, be the best you can be at work and show up the best you can show up in your life, the rest of your life. For me, for example, Tara, baseline is my sleep. I need to get my eight hours sleep. Of course, there are days when I don't get it, but in general, the majority of nights, if I get my eight hours sleep, I wake up feeling ready to take on whatever challenges life brings us. Um, for others, it can be exercise or stress management. Of course, everything is integrated. Like if you're sleep deprived, you're going to crave sugars and bad carbs. It's going to be harder to manage your stress. And it's going to be harder to be empathetic and connected to others. So that's really what we bring into companies. And also what we found is so important, Ari, is we need to bring it into the workflow. So there are people who don't even want to download another app. So we meet them on Microsoft Teams or on Slack, wherever they are. And that's where um, they can be reminded with nudges, with recommendations, with what we call micro steps, small daily incremental steps, how to take care of these five foundational behaviors and recognize that this is going to dramatically affect their productivity at work. 
Well, let's talk about that a little bit more because I know we've talked a lot about how workers have sort of had this epiphany during the pandemic and they're like, okay, my old life wasn't working. I need you know, more balance and, and more time with my family and, and, a, and a less stressful work life. Do you think companies, that corporations have had this epiphany? Do you think they are changing the way they treat employees or are, are we getting closer to that? I think there's been a huge shift because of the pandemic, Tara. You know, we work with many multinational companies, whether it's Walmart, Accenture, Salesforce, uh, Pfizer, and we've seen a real change. We've also seen that these issues have been elevated to the C-suite. They're not just HR issues. Like when we launch Thrive in any company, we often launch um, with a fireside chat with a senior leader, as well as the HR leader. At, at CVS, for example, we launched with Karen Lynch, the CEO, and Laura Havanagh, the CHRO. The reason for that is that we're in the middle of a big cultural transformation. And people need to feel that they have cultural permission to take care of themselves. Because if you think of it, since the Industrial Revolution, we've lived under this delusion that in order to be successful and productive, you have to be always on. It's like we started revering machines and the goal with machines and after machines, software is always on. So now we are recognizing that the human operating system is different. For the human operating system, downtime is not a bug, it's a feature. And thus changing um, the way we approach the connection between employee well-being, productivity, and business metrics. But we're in the middle of this transformation, Tara. Um, as you look around, you know this is by no means a complete transformation. There are companies and leaders who are ahead, others who are behind. But also we need to have individuals shift their mindsets because individuals often uh, have a very hard time disconnecting and taking time to recharge. And of course, the addiction to social media and technology makes it harder. I like what you said, though, that the need for a downtime is not a bug, it's a feature. I mean, that is a very different way of thinking. And, and to that end, you know, how you started Thrive Global, there's a very personal story behind it about your own health and your own challenges. You know, there was a, there was a moment for you where you realized that you weren't taking care of yourself. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yes, um, in 2007, two years into building the Huffington Post, I was the divorced mother of two daughters. And I had bought into this collective delusion that in order to be a great founder and a great mom, I had to be always on. And the truth is that that's impossible. There's a heavy price you pay. And uh, I ended up one morning literally collapsing, hitting my head on my desk, breaking my cheekbone. And as I studied um, through many doctor appointments, as well as my own um, work, the phenomenon of burnout, which is what I had been diagnosed with, I realized that it was a global epidemic. It's a global epidemic that was only acknowledged by the World Health Organization in 2019, many, many years later, 
when I launched Thrive in 2016, the mission was to end the stress and burnout epidemic. We have a way to go, but what makes me optimistic is that while stress is unavoidable, cumulative stress is avoidable, and it's cumulative stress that's the killer. So on our Thrive Tech platform, for example, we've brought the 60-second resets because, again, neuroscience tells us that it takes 60 to 90 seconds to move us from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic nervous system and interrupt the stress cycle. So it's quite amazing, Tara, to see how in 60 seconds of focusing on our breathing consciously, looking at images of nature, um, listening to music, um, reading favorite quotes. We have hundreds of these preloaded on the Thrive app, on Microsoft Teams, on um, Slack. Just this tiny interruption can basically bring you back to center. So these are the micro steps that you're talking about. Is that I, Thrive Global talks about taking micro steps? Is this what are these the 60 second breaks? Uh, no, that's one of the hundreds of micro steps. Every I see. one of these every one of these five behaviors that I mentioned has many micro steps. Um, Thrive Reset, which is about reducing stress, is one of the micro steps in the stress management pillar. If we go to the sleep pillar, for example, my favorite micro step is turning off your phone before you go to bed and charging it outside your bedroom. I know this is so hard for many people. 72% of the world sleeps with their phones either on their nightstand or cuddled up beside them. But it's absolutely imperative for a good night's sleep. Now, again, if you don't think you can do it every night, Start with one night and see the result, see the impact it can have. I mean, I'm wearing my aura ring and I track my sleep and I know that I can get more REM sleep, more deep sleep, and be much more recharged and renewed when I wake up in the morning if I have really separated myself from my phone because this phone is not really a phone. Nobody ever calls anybody anymore. It's the repository of every problem and every project to work with. And we need to separate ourselves from it because as you know, Tara, our lives, our daily lives tend to be about control, but sleep is about surrender. So that's just one of many micro steps. Another favorite micro step is when you wake up in the morning, Take 60 seconds to focus on your breath or to remember what you're grateful for or set your intention for the day before you go to your phone, which is much easier if you're not sleeping with your phone. Why do you think it's so hard for people to do this? I've, I've heard, you know, heard this advice and I, I know so many people that charge the phone right next to the bed. Um, part of it is they maybe want an alarm. Uh, what do you think of that? I mean, what if somebody says, I need my phone, I need it to wake me up in the morning. What's your answer to that? Oh my God, you have no idea how many um, old-fashioned alarm clocks I've, beat, I've bought for people as gifts. You know, Pottery Barn has a lovely one, $32. This is just an excuse, Tara. Let's get an alarm clock. <laughs> it looks beautiful on the nightstand. 
we don't need our phones to wake us up. Also, another little secret is if you get enough sleep, you don't need an alarm. I mean, I set an alarm uh, to be sure I don't oversleep, but frankly, it's been a long time, a long time that my alarm woke me up. I'm always awake before because if you plan your night and your day, um, you are going to have gotten enough sleep before you have to get up. You know, I don't use an alarm clock, but it's because I have a dog. My dog <laughs> is my alarm clock. It's a good one. Wakes me up. We okay. go for a walk. But does your, does your dog wake you up before you're ready to wake up? No, it tends to be the same time. We're in a great routine, and I, I stop using my alarm clock, and it's a good way to start the day. So I recommend the dog alarm clock. I do recommend it. Um, I do like this idea of these micro steps. Can you give me another one maybe in the food, in the world of food and nutrition? What's a good tip in that area? So in the world of food, at Thrive, we have a very, very simple rule, which is, and then we break it down into micro steps. But the overarching rule, is can you minimize sugar and processed foods? And if you have something favorite, like I'm not a sugar person, but I've been a cheese person and cheese didn't work with me. So you can look for swaps. One of our micro steps is if there is something you love, look if there is a swap you can make with it. Um, if you drink six sodas a day, can you swap, start with half of a soda with sparkling water and lime juice or lemon, just something. If you um, are used to eating late and going straight to bed, can you start eating earlier? Again, make it half an hour earlier, then you can make it an hour earlier because we have a lot of evidence, scientific evidence, that if you go to bed with a full stomach, it's much harder to get a restorative sleep. So again, you see the connection among these five behaviors. Definitely. Um, let's talk about one more. Let's talk about- Can I say, can I say sure. one more thing sure. about food? We find, we work with over 2 million associates at Walmart. Many of them have tough frontline jobs. I'm very happy you mentioned frontline workers in your conversation with a congressman because they're often forgotten in this well-being conversation. We work with them to improve these five behaviors. And we've seen amazing results. People losing um, 34 pounds. One uh, woman whose job is to stock shelves overnight in a Walmart store lost. And how did she do it? How do how does everybody um, who loses weight or even um, reverses diabetes, how do they do it? By beginning to cook at home rather mm -hmm. than eating fast food. That is the big secret. And what you have in your kitchen, what you have in your fridge is going to be key because Behavior change is about minimizing how much is dependent on your willpower, making it easy. If you love chocolate and your fridge has a lot of chocolate goodies, you're going to eat it, no matter what you tell yourself. So try to avoid having around things that you love that are temptations and make it easier to follow the micro steps you want. 
So let's talk a little bit about just managing the work week. You had a conversation or an interaction with Elon Musk who talked about needing to work 120 hours a week. And what was your response to that? Well, you know what is interesting? I've written a few pieces about Elon Musk kind of demonstrating why um, working around the clock, sleeping in the office, et cetera, doesn't work. Um, you just have impaired judgment. You make bad decisions. We saw that happening with Twitter. So in a sense, he's providing a Harvard Business School case study on how not to lead. But he's recognizing it. I, I want to give him credit for saying recently that he's now sleeping six hours instead of three or four. And he said, I accomplish more during the time I'm awake than before. That's fantastic. And in court in San Francisco, um, he told the judge, I'm sorry, um, I'm not my best today because I didn't get a good night's sleep. So I love it when he recognizes the connection between sleep and performance. So it's not like the way we've thought for decades. You uh, snooze, you lose, I'll sleep when I'm dead. It's mm -hmm. really part of the cultural transformation, what he's saying now. So he listened to you. That's great. Um, we do have an audience question. I don't think um, listening to me. I think he's a science-driven guy. Okay. And I think he just needs to look at the science. You know, unfortunately, what I'm saying um, is, um, is at the moment so well documented with thousands of sleep scientists uh, around the world. We, we just need to uh, follow the data. So let's hear from a listener. Uh, Mindy Covington from Virginia has a question. Um, she asked about the necessity of well-being at work is linked like never before, you know, after the pandemic. How can we respond to those who want life to go back to the way it was pre-pandemic? How do we move forward in a resilient way as we confront the massive amount of change coming our way? What do you think of that? Well, first of all, I'm so glad, Mindy, you brought up the world resilient because we are in the middle of unprecedented uncertainty, incredible change, and resilience is the key. And um, companies that recognize that know that we cannot return to our pre-pandemic ways without uh, paying a very, very high cost in terms of attrition, retention, productivity, uh, customer success, all the metrics that a business takes into account. So at the moment, again, as I said earlier, we are in the middle of this big cultural transformation, but each individual um, needs, no matter what is happening at work, to be a change agent, to talk to their manager, to talk to their colleagues, but also to make sure at home that we don't uh, revert to our own bad behaviors of um, staying up um, all hours, binge watching Netflix or um, doom scrolling the news. So it's a combination of what's happening at work and what are we doing at home. Well, we're going to have to leave it there, but that's a great note to end on. Unfortunately, we are out of time. So Ariana Huffington, thank you so much for joining us today. I enjoyed talking to you. Thank you so much, Tara. Say hi to your dog. Thanks for listening. 
For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.